Happy New Year. Hope you've enjoyed a little bit of R&R around the holidays. We in the King family have largely laid low, with the exception of my annual crazy New Year's ride. Two years ago, I rode the entire length of the state of Vermont. Last year was my first and only Everest. And this year, I decided to do a lap of Lake Champlain, which is the western border of northern Vermont. It's 200 miles door-to-door from my house. The pathetic state of affairs in terms of snow here in Vermont this winter makes for good, dry, temperature-agreeable bike riding. So I'll get a video up on YouTube soon, if I haven't done so already. And speaking of YouTube sensations, folks, look up Alex Dowsett if you don't follow him already. So this recent world tour retiree, as of about a week ago, has, I believe, 15 pro victories to his name, two of those in grand tours. He's a six-time British national professional champion. He's a pair of medals in the Commonwealth Games, gold and silver. He has a blistering fast time that earned him the hour record just a few years ago. And he's done a terrific job sharing his journey through social media, in particular, his YouTube channel. So as I wrap up my six-month regimen on blood thinners for my pulmonary embolism, I was particularly interested in talking to Alex about his life. See, I knew it sort of uh, peripherally while racing, but it wasn't until I had my PE last summer that I was reminded by a handful of friends I should talk to Alex because he has hemophilia. Feel free to nitpick this next part apart, but as we discussed today, he's pretty much the first professional athlete to have hemophilia. That's, of course, thanks to his athletic prowess, but also thanks to the way his parents raised him and the time in which he has lived with modern medicine. So I'm curious how he's handled this diagnosis, how tough it was as a little kid, how stigmatized it was, and through the success he's had on the bike. And it's through that success he's opened doors for young kids with the incredible work he does for the Little Bleeders organization. It's truly awesome. So here's what we got. World-class cyclist, media maven, often riding and racing for a tremendous cause. I thought it was high time we sat down for a chat with Alex. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Friends, if you've listened to this podcast lately, you know that I'm starting my day every day with a serving of AG1 by Athletic Greens. I use it every single day because it has simplified my life in terms of the supplements and vitamins that I take. It gives me reassurance that I'm getting those necessary vitamins and minerals from a whole food source. It has the adaptogens, probiotics, and micronutrients that I rely on every day. Plus, it tastes great. Right now, it is time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with the convenient daily nutrition. And Athletic Greens is here to help. They're going to give you free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash tedking. Once again, athleticgreens.com slash tedking. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Okay, no more delay. Let's start our conversation with Alex Dowsett. Dowsett, psyched to have you on the show. Thank you very much for for taking the time. Um, Now, 
Let's start with a very important opening question. Is running a good idea or a bad idea? <laughs> um, I think in theory, a good idea. It's, it's a, since retiring, it's, you know, it's become less about training and more about exercise and it is a far easier way to exercise. It's both in terms of getting out the door and um, weather and I think bang for buck in terms of hours. Um, obviously you get more around. In reality, it's been, um, I've, 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 in the last two years, I've never been more injured than I've been in the last like two months. Um, and it, it's taken a lot for my body to get used to used to running. I've got the help of Mike Woods and Ellie Woods, and they're um, they, they're sort of they've got a running company, Miles to Marathon. Um, and I, I said to Mike, I was like, Mike, how do I run? We were on the on the in the car on the way to the airport for the Tour of Britain. I was like, if I wanted to run, how do I do that? And he said, well, you start off um, week one. You run three times and it's five minutes long, no longer. And, and he said, if, and if you can, run the first minute of that in bare feet. Um, I was like, okay, yeah, I like the why. So I was like, why? And he said, for starters, that your body is, are you, you pro bike, well, us pro bike riders, we're, um, it's like having a, a V8 strapped into a Citroen 2CB chassis. Um, and he said the, the chassis needs to catch up. So, uh, and the, the reason for barefoot was teaching you, like, because our feet are just like we just lock our feet in and want them to do as little as possible. He's like, but in running, they actually they're very functional. So it's, it's teaching that. Second week, ten minutes, same deal. Third week, fifteen minutes. Build it up all the way up to an hour, and then you can start running. Um, so I, I got to like half an hour and then I was like, oh, sometimes I'll do 40 minutes, sometimes I'll do 20. And then I, I just kind of built it up and yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm doing so right. you were able to follow that protocol more or less? Up until, yeah, more or less up until the 40 minute mark. And then I kind of, um, uh, yeah, I just, I just fluctuated around that suddenly time and, I, having a kid and, and everything else going on was was becoming, you know, a five-minute run takes five minutes. So the 40-minute run is a little bit more involved and you have to plan for it. So, um, yeah, it, it's been interesting. And and is there is there an event on your radar that is going to involve running here in the not-too-distant future? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to do London Marathon. Um, oh, wow. Which is end of April. Okay. Uh, yeah, Chanel... Um, my fiance signed us. Like, the minute I think I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop racing and push back." She's like, "Cool, we're doing a London marathon." Um, and I think the good, but the good thing is we can do it for a good cause. Him, Philly Society, my own charity. So it really is a is a no brainer. We we could bring a lot of um, oomph to him, uh, Philly through that. Um, the issue is, like, I could yeah, with, without bragging, I could. I could run a marathon tomorrow. I'd, I'd get around. I'm a diesel by nature, um, but I don't just, you know, I'm also competitive by nature, so I don't just want to run it. I'd like to run it reasonably quick. Um, I don't know what that looks like yet, but we'll see. 
Would you, I don't want to spend too much time talking about running, but I'm also, I, I'm dabbling in it myself as I typically do this time of year. Yeah. Would you do the traditional thing in a, in a call it traditional cyclist off season were you to race next season where sometime two weeks into or a week into your off season, you'd go for one half hour run and then you can't walk for the next three days. Is, would you normally do that? No, I, I never used to do that. Um, mainly because I think by uh, I think in my youth I didn't worry about losing fitness because I knew I could get it back. As an older, wiser bike rider, uh, when I got that itch, I knew that I could do myself some damage. Um, <laughs> so I, I just, you know what? There's, there's, this could, yes, I could kickstart a little bit of fitness before we start properly training or I could put myself out for another month or two with, uh, so I, yeah, I, I, I'm also good at not training. I'm quite happy. I, I'm not one of these, uh, bike riders who's like, I just have to exercise all the time. I am quite happy not yeah. doing it as well. Um, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if that makes you the, the norm or the outlier among the world tour Peloton. But, um, as of three days ago, when the contract has ended, this is recording on January 3rd, you are outside of a contract window. You are no longer a professional cyclist. So for one, congratulations. Um, I know that you haven't raced for what, presumably a few months now anyway, but do you, does it feel any different on the other side of the window now that it is January three? Um, so I mean, I guess the first thing to address is the fact that I haven't raced since the middle of October and it's such a unique period of time because it's, I, the cycling contracts are stupid because they end on the 31st of December. It's stupid because for two and a half months, I have been a paid professional bike rider that has done precisely zero bike riding and zero interaction with any kind of team. So Israel um, Premier Tech were effectively paying me to be a bike rider for two and a half months where I ceased to exist. Um, and you know, the second reason it's silly is, is you, when you change teams, there's that interim period where you're on next year's bike, but you shouldn't be. You, you're not in, you're on next year's bike, but you're in your team kit still. You're going on team camps and you're the only one on a Katusha camp in Movistar kit or Israel camp in Katusha kit. Um, and so you, you stand out there. But then you've got to do the photos and there's apparently the team you're going to has to ask permission from the team you're leaving that you can ride, you can wear their kit just for one day. Um, so, I mean, contracts should really, in my mind, be shifted two months further forward. But that's, So it's been a wonderful, like, being paid, like having a salary coming to my account, but like, there's no one with the exception of someone messaging me going, can we have our bikes back? Uh, zero communication, zero like, accountability, zero pressure, zero like, I think after mid-November, I was like, oh, I'm putting on a bit of weight. You, know, you, you go to that first team camp and his eyes everywhere. You know? They're all saying like, oh no, we don't, we don't. Like, they're all looking, they're all watching. And, um, like, oh, he's real skinny. He's real skinny. Um, no, um, and, uh, and it's stupid. 
every like what 12 years in the world tour and still i'm like oh like, i'm i'm behind i need to catch up come february march like fully caught up and fine um but yeah and it was i think that was probably the strangest bit where i was like i need to start now i had that feeling where i was like i have to begin but then i was like well but i don't this year and that was i would go through that cycle of thought quite a few times um which was uh yeah it was strange strange but it's, it's been it's nice i'm um i think very i'm excited about what's next i'm happy with the point at which i left and i think the amount of riders that are out of contract still really consolidated um that decision i don't know if i would have been one of them but i might have been and you know, with like, a family now and, and my bike riding is our main source of it. It's not our only source of income, but it's our main source of income. And just that uncertainty, I'm, I'm happy to have not put my family through that again. Um, and also with the year, I just, I was like, you know, I've, I think I've clocked what I'm physically capable of. And I was pretty content with that, to be honest. So yeah, it's, it's been fun. And I will start training again at some point because there's stuff on a bike I want to do next this year. But, um, yeah, I'm enjoying the, the lack of pressure. Sure. Yeah, it always baffles me at the end of the year. I mean, I, th- I feel like there's so many teams contracting. So it's in the headlines a little bit more nowadays. But at the end of the year, they're injured midseason and, and their careers just come to a halt. They come screaming off a cliff. And there's no, not fanfare, but I think anybody who has ever raced a bike professionally or any elite level, there's so much time and dedication that goes into it. I feel like anybody who's done that deserves recognition, a retirement party, and not not have the sort of name drag, not, not drag through mud, but like, it's sad to be at a point where people are like, well, I don't know if I'm going to have a, a job this year. And yeah, quite frankly, it's it's 2023. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I was in a similar place when I chose to retire. It was early on in that, that year. I said, I want to go out with my head high and you've certainly done that. Um, so, okay. Uh, I think there is some benefit to chronology. Um, can you, can you talk me about your upbringing? I mean, the, the family life, what sports you were playing, what you were like academically, anything like that? Um, yeah, so good news. Okay, I, I yeah, born in the UK, um, born white into a wealthy family. Um, yeah, there is no beating around the bush that is that you're an advantage. Um, bad news is it shouldn't be an advantage, but like that's the state of the world. Um, bad news was I was born with hemophilia, and that's I think possibly that shaped my um, trajectory more than um, more than the fact that I was I was born lucky in the in the privileged sense. Um, so childhood was difficult from a medical standpoint. Was not um, for the first eighteen months of my life. My parents were taking me to and from the doctors, saying we think there's something wrong. Um, because I would just, I'd bruise like the bruisiest peach and 
it's a point when my like mum or dad would lift me up, put me down, and I would have two black thumbprints across my chest worth of bruising. Um, doctors sending my parents away, saying he's just uh, he's just a baby that bruises easily, and you, quite frankly, are worrying a bit too much. Um, in the end, at eighteen months old, my mum, well, my mum and dad demanded uh, blood tests, and. Um, my, my, my mother was a hairdresser. Uh, my dad was a former racing car driver turned um, in a small carpet cleaning company that um, did uh, hotels in London. So we had a good good life balance, I guess. Um, yeah, mum took me to doctors, had a blood test, um, coincidentally tripped, fell over on the way out of the um, doctors and split just that little bit of, little bit of skin um that's uh, that's down in your in between your gum and your lip and and if it's so with hemophilia basically there's 13 steps stages to your blood forming a clot your blood congealing and i do not have an ounce of the eighth one um if you don't have one of them and there's different forms of hemophilia that don't have the seventh or the ninth or um, the 13th um but the hemophilia I have is the most common with missing the eighth. And without that, it, it looks like um, it, people generally lean to, um, oh, so a paper cut would not kill me. The body finds a way around that. Um, but the biggest issue would be internal bleeding um, into joints, into muscles. And I had plenty of that. Um, but external stuff, so like, you know, luckily for this, split my lip. Looked like parents put me to bed, looked like it was congealing. Um, they went to bed, checked on me in the night, and I'm asleep effectively in a pool of blood because uh, it's like broken down, tried to stop, broken down. It's just this cycle. Um, got a, I get an ambulance with a doctor in who said, uh, I think my mum thought it was leukemia, um, but the doctor who came in said, We think he's, well, I think he's got hemophilia. Um, so, and then blood test results come back a couple of days later. It's like, yeah, he has severe hemophilia, right? Um, the original doctor who uh, told my parents they were worrying too much and they threw the documents at my mum across the table to sign because he disagreed so much with the blood test. Um, he ended up apologising and said, like, I've made a mistake here. It's something I'm going to read up on and I'm going to learn. Or I'm going to recognise to listen to a mother's intuition a bit more as well. So um, that's a good haemophilia story. There's bad ones where kids have been taken into social services and stuff because they sort of arrived at nursery or some with bruises all over them. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a pretty good haemophilia story. Um, then, yeah, primary school. Primary school wasn't too bad. Um, the medication changed whilst I was growing up. It's a different haemophiliac board now is going to have a better run of luck than I had. And I had a far better run of luck than haemophiliac. If I was born, if I was born in the 60s, life expectancy wouldn't be past 20. Um, if I was born five or 10 years earlier, there was a big uh, way people might have heard of haemophilia as a contaminated blood scandal where... Um, so my medication is synthetically made. Um, before that, it was concentrated blood transfusions. 
And a lot of those were contaminated with HIV and hepatitis because of the model of uh, people. Um, there was no accountability. There was no background checking on people that would donate blood. And so there's, there's an awful lot of hemophiliac older than I am that have HIV and hepatitis um, on top of the hemophilia. So, yeah, very lucky again there. Um, but when I was young, the, the treatment was given reactively. Uh, now, and then when I, after I was 11, it was given proactively. So reactively, I would have a problem. Um, so generally an internal bleed into a joint. And it would feel much like you've broke, now that I've broken bones, it would feel like you've broken a bone. Um, you've, uh, you, it would hurt to move it and you'd have to like, be immobile. Um, and then I'd have like medication and it would be gone in a week. So, so primary school like, was quite tough at times because I'd go in with my arm in a sling but no plaster cast. Or I'd go in on crutches but no, um, nothing to still have my school shoes on. And I think a lot of other kids just thought I was faking it to get out of sport, ironically. Um, and so, but in terms of missing sport, I was, I was pretty much allowed to do um, most sports at primary school. Um, secondary school... Oh, but then there was, you know, it's not to say it's a sob story, there was other parents who were aware of the, the HIV hepatitis thing and I didn't get invited to kids' birthday parties and, and stuff because they just added two and two, made 27 and um, just didn't say it. But, yeah, it's, it, it's fun, right, I'm good. Um, secondary school uh, went on to reactive, no, yeah, re no, proactive treatment. So would have an injection, it's an intravenous injection every second day. Um, and that would stop me having any issues. So for all intents and purposes then, like, I'm normal. But the doctors are still, and it's still like, rugby's off the table. Um, football is generally off the table. Um, and that's pretty much staple sports in English schools. So... I, um, yeah, I, what happened next? I, I, I was a referee once. And I was like, this is, this is terrible. This is about the fastest way to unpopularity. This is, um, so now in the back, I mean, at school, I, I went to a, in the UK, we have a system where if 11 years old, you can take an exam if you pass it. Well, you can go to a top tier state school, so not private, not paid for, like state school, but they'll only accept kids that have done a certain, got a certain level in this exam. I got into a good, uh, good school. Um, so I, that that was a bit easier because kids were, I, I was never like bullied for missing sport or anything like that. Like, everyone seems to understand and acknowledge it. Um, so that, you know, that side of, things were great. I probably I was quite academic, but in that school, it was like legitimate geniuses. So it was sort of mid to low end of the pack, which was fine. I, I came home from the GCSEs having attained, which is like the 16 year old exams. I got straight A's. And I would have been in the bottom quarter of my year group because most kids were getting straight A stars. And I was in tears because I was like, I'm one of the worst here. It was just like, any other school it would be a ridiculous set of results but it was like, anyway um, 
outside of school is probably where things were a bit more interesting. Um, I wanted to do sport and I was swimming a lot. The doctors had said it was really good for haemophiliacs and their joints um, was not being fat, not being overweight, because overweight is more in more weight and stress on joints and they're more prone to bleeding internally. And they said swimming, it's as low risk as it gets. Um, and it works every single joint and muscle in the body. So my mum, as, as basically as early as possibly could, had me swimming with like three different swim classes across the county, five even, to just be swimming a lot. Um, joined a swimming club, um, wasn't, yeah, and then I was swimming like early mornings, like five, sort of six, six, seven times a week. Um it was the early starts my parents, I think, were like, yeah, that's, that's enough now. We felt like we've done enough here. It's sort of 4.35 a.m. starts. It's, it's not the level of swimming we signed up for. So they had, I think they had a great, like knowing what I know now about like parents and motivating kids, they had a phenomenal mechanism. They said, if you want to swim, if you want to do the 6 a.m. swim sessions, you wake us up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good move. And if I woke them up, they'd take me. Yeah. Um, but there was, yeah, probably 25% of the sessions I didn't wake up. For. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, look, now I'm a dad. I'm like, what a brilliant, you don't want to be a pushy parent. And it's the perfect way. Of, right, right. Uh, Make it, give the kid a little proactivity. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but just, I never got out of club level. And I realized I wanted to be good at sport. And I think that came from, um, there's two factors that created that. One was my father's racing, car racing career. He raced at a time when you had, you had very rich racing drivers and you had very good racing drivers. And my dad was like, my dad barely met, made ends meet. They remortgaged their house for my dad to continue racing. Dad will sit here and tell you he didn't commit. By doing that, he didn't commit hard enough. Um, like they remortgaged their house. Nigel Mansell sold his house and lived in a caravan for the year to fund his racing. And my dad's like, that's that's the level of commitment that I should have taken. But he, yeah, he was. It's nice. A lot of like, he's got some amazing stories, and and also when we had gone to watch racing, I'd seen how um, a lot of my dad's racing colleagues, the wealthy ones, had said just how good dad was. Like he'd just strike fear into the heart of the grid when he'd turn up. And it's just super, like, super proud of him. But also, like, Christ, what am I going to tell my kids when I'm older? Because, like, I can't, can't top this. Um, so I think that was that. Um, and on the other hand, it's like the hemophilia. You spent childhood being told what you can't do. And, and we see it now. I, I have a charity that helps you see it. the kids either go and do it anyway or they um, yeah they rebel and go and do it or they pick or if they're channeled well like I was and my parents instead of saying no it's like we unfortunately you can't do this but we're going to go do this instead and, and it was such a good um, diversion so and we weren't, you know, I wasn't allowed to play rugby at school, but my mum and dad recognised, I think, that I wasn't, like, swimming was starting to get a bit tiresome and I wasn't going to be as good as I'd hoped. Um, they said, so let's, let's go try sailing, like dinghy sailing, not, like, 
big stuff, like little tiny little boats. And so we started sailing, and like most people just sailed in the summer, but we sailed in the winter as well because <laughs> my dad's like, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this properly. Right. I would sail on this lake and it cracked the ice right before we. Get oh my god. Summer. <laughs> That's legitimate winter sailing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um but then went to an international and just I got annihilated. But I think I remember looking at the gap between me and the front. I was like, I'm I'm not naturally talented enough at this to get to that point. And that was that was important. And there's a few other sports, yeah, yeah, athletics and we played basketball as well. That seemed about as as at school level as, as, as safe a uh, team sport as you could play. Um, and yeah, and then, and then discovered the bike. Um, that happened. My dad and his mates, all his windsurfing friends, all went through a bit of a, um, I don't know, maybe it was a collective midlife crisis and started turning up when I was nine on my dad's driveway to go mountain biking. Um, and then when I was 11, I asked dad if I could join. Um, he took me out, took us up the local, like into the woods, but up, we had to ride up a hill first. And this is a hill that around my, I mean, I, I now have the Strava comp for it. Um, but when I was 11, trying to chase my dad, I got to the top and threw up. Um, yeah. So, uh, he um, and then joined him, and then one of the chaps that because road biking wasn't very accessible. Like, I'd seen road bikes, I was like, I want to have a go on one. But he's like, if you wanted to have a go on one, the cheapest one in the cheapest store was four hundred pounds. It was a lot of money to have a go on something. But um, then, yeah, a chap named Eric Smith. I said to Dad, do you think Eric will let me let me have a go on one of his road bikes? And I said, yeah, we well, just have to ask. Um, so went to it was an Eddie Merck, it was an alley, alloy Eddie Merckx with Campag Chorus. So I started cool, um, and then uh, went to watch his son race the time trial, which is massive in the UK. Um, and then a week later, I did the time trial, the sixteen k, ten miles, twenty eight minutes and one second. Um, we were told I pedaled. I was told I pedaled nicely. Um, didn't really know what it meant. Um, and then a year later, so that was when I was 13, a year later qualified for the schoolboy um, national finals, and that was for under 17-year-olds. And that was a category for winning each age group, each age as well. And qualified terribly, because I was still very, I think I, quite, I was riding a fixed wheel TT bike at the time, because I got told to use it to pedal to learn how to pedal properly because I was using the gears to make things easier for myself not to go faster. Um, yeah, I qualified badly. I was off early, posted the fastest time. I, I did a PB by, it was 21 minutes and 12 seconds. Um, waited for everyone to come in. All the four, I'd beaten all the 14-year-olds. I'd beaten all the 15-year-olds. And the last guy to go off I was faster than at the halfway mark and then he just turned me over at the finish and that was Ian Stannard uh, but I like the leaderboard was like 16 year old Stannard 14 year old me and then the rest of the top 10 was 16 and I just remember looking at that I was like 
I found my, I found it. I found what I'm going to do now. I found what I'm good at. And I think also my dad used to tell me as a kid, he's like, everyone's got a talent at something, but until they try it, you're never going to, you're never going to work it out. So I think that, that played into it as well. Um, told the doctors that I'd taken up like competitive road cycling and they, they, were, they said, well, we'd hardly play chess or a musical instrument if that's what you want to do, we'll, we'll support you. So, because it was, it was new ground for haemophiliac. So, um, yeah, and then it, then it just steamrolled from there. So. so, yeah, I definitely, I want to talk about your career and the unfolding of your career. Um, in particular, I'm really interested in talking with you as I am currently on blood thinners, which is a result of having a pulmonary embolism. And I, I, uh, my, the long story short is I think being on blood thinners is a similar thing to having hemophilia. It, it disrupts the coagulation that would take place normally. Um, so, I mean, I'm really interested in talking about that piece as well. So thank you for giving me the, the background especially as a youth and how it could be incredibly trying. How, how has medication changed now over, call it the past 20 years? Um, you talked about taking it proactively. Yeah. Is that continuing to be the case? I mean, how, what is the um, day-to-day yeah. look like? Yeah, my day still looks very similar. It's, they've refined it in that it, it used to be a syringe of like 50 mil, and now it's a syringe of um, 10, uh, 5 and it used to take 30 minutes to get ready, and now it takes five minutes. They haven't, um, but they are on the cusp of, no, I mean, gene therapy exists now. Um, it's not as effective for my hemophilia as it is for um, a different form of hemophilia, but it is effective. Um, so that's one, one injection and you're done for life. Um, so... I mean, that's how it's changed. But if the young hemophiliac would be born today, um, they would be straight on to proactive, prophylactic, um, we call it proactive medication. And they, and that, that raises other challenges. Like I know I had internal bleeds. I have limited, one of my elbows doesn't quite bend fully. It doesn't straighten fully. Um, and I have a funny ankle from joint damage from internal bleeding as a kid. Like I know that I have hemophilia, but you've got kids now who who haven't all they've done is been told like you have hemophilia, you have to take this medication and you can't play rugby or American football. Uh, and that, somehow I think that might be harder because they don't so you want to experience I don't know you don't want to experience it it hurts but to experience it is then to know you have you you have it um, so I think that's yeah there's a different set of challenges but certainly much um, overall healthier like, kids with far more like freedom to explore other avenues I think I like football I mean, football, like soccer, football is so big in the UK. It's a real tough one for kids, and and like you can play up to a certain age, but at a certain age, like boys become men. They start training in the gym, start getting heavier, the tackles get harder, and and it's like the, the longevity to the career could be um, quite difficult. So it's it's more of a case like, do you want 
stop your kid doing it now before you get too far up the road with it. Or do you want to break the news to them further down the line when it's, yeah. So I think those are the challenges now. And what, given that the medication now is so good, what are, it seems like a dumb question, what are the risks, if you're on medication, what are the risks in playing American soccer or even rugby? I mean... Um, I, it's in hospital they panic more um, I because I, like for surgery and stuff controlling bleeding is is, is difficult um, so that's that's the main I, th- I think that's the main thing it's it's kind of something we need like it's all still so new like I'm like without being big it's, it's as a matter of fact I'm the only elite I'm the first and only elite athlete with hemophilia, but I'm not, there's going to be more because it's like treading new ground. I'd probably, under the advice of the doctors, if my parents had taken it to the absolute, um, like, umpteenth degree, probably shouldn't be doing what I'm doing, but it's fine. So it's like, and, and now I, think I, I know my story is used as a positive story for parents of newly diagnosed hemophiliacs. So it's, it's not to say, like, this hemophiliac's doing that, but you shouldn't. It's like, well, hemophilia got there. Perhaps wasn't under doctor's orders, but he got there, and that's what's possible now. So, you know, in an, in another twenty years, we might be saying that actually, yeah, there is now no reason why you can't play football and rugby. But the, the times that I've had surgery, it's always an afternoon surgery because they have to check your blood clotting levels in the morning, and it's just a they just panic a bit more when you arrive. It's quite funny. Yeah. How about? Uh, road rash, falling off your bike, losing a bunch of skin is common, common, mm. I'll throw that in air quotes, in cycling. Is there anything else that happens? Do you take like an emergency injection at that point or? or um, no? Might do in the evening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I might do that evening just to be of because one injection will get me up to 60% of like what your levels are at. What levels you might be at because you might be at 20%. If you're on blood thinners, that probably isn't the case. But hypothetically, you might be at 20%, but you'll never know because it's 20% enough. Um, uh, so, yeah, one injection gets me up to 60%. So if I've had a if I've had a fall, then I might have another one get me up to 100%. Um, but ultimately, because I had Movistar, like, um, Movistar said to me, like, what do we do when you crash? I said, well, if it's bad, if I can carry on, I will. If I can't, then probably need to go to hospital. And they just went, right, so just like anyone else on the team. I said, yeah, I mean, a hospital's going to panic when I get there. Um, insurance is going to be a ball ache. But, um, and you'll have to hand them like a bag with my medication in. But otherwise, yeah, it's no different to if Valverde or the VT crashes. Yeah. Well, Valverde got pretty good at crashing recently. Um, well, okay. That is, I I am very interested in it. I really appreciate you opening up about it. Uh, it's really cool, aspirational, inspirational, what you've been able to do with hemophilia. So that's, that is awesome. Um, let's talk a little bit about bike racing, bike riding in your entire career. Uh, yeah, you were just talking about Movie Star. You raced for some really international teams in a sport that's characteristically very international so you got what i'll call a very american team with trek livestrong 
a very British team with Sky, a very Spanish team with Movie Star, a very Russian team with Katusha, yeah. and what seems like a pretty darn international team with Israel Premier Tech. Yes. Um, I was on a very international team with Cervelo Test Team. I raced for a very Italian team with Liquid Gas, so I can either yeah. empathize or relate with some of these traditional values or some modern thoughts in cycling. Uh, can you pick apart some of those experiences? Um, did you thrive at a particular team or were you ever fish out of water? That is, um, oh, so the, the key differences between, um, the Scott, uh, English team, Spanish team, Russian team, which I'd say actually by the time I got there was, there was a, it felt more of a German influence than a Russian influence. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's still Russian-backed at the time, but it's Swiss-owned. So make it, yeah, make it that what you will. Um, we had a 7 o'clock meeting, 7 p.m. meeting at Team Sky. If you weren't there at 6.50, you were late. <laughs> if you had a 7 o'clock meeting at Movistar, if you were there at 7, you were the only one. <laughs> And if you had a seven o'clock meter at Katusha, it started at seven. Yeah. And that was like, there was the sort of fundamental differences. Um, but, um, and, yeah, in, in Israel, it was like um, seven o'clock would be seven o'clock. Um, America was great. I really, I did three years prior to that, I'd be banging my head against the brick wall in Italy with the national team, um, the British national team. And just could not finish races because they all went uphill, and I, I don't go uphill as well as I do other aspects of cycling. Um, so yeah, had the opportunity. Career was possibly looking like it was going to be down and out, um, and uh, but then salvaged a top ten at under twenty three world championships and got the last place on, on Trek Lipstrop for that year. Um, and that was wild. It was a real, like a massive culture shock, um, a massive shock to the system. But I'd realized how advantageous it was for me having been on the GB setup because I knew how to be a bike rider and so many of my teammates did not. Um, but it was just, yeah, like the first team camp was in, well, the first communication we had was from, um, the, the 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 logistics lady from the team and it was like hope y'all spelled Y apostrophe A double L had a happy Halloween. Halloween is something that goes and comes by pretty quickly in the UK and that made me laugh. And then I saw a communication between um, Chase Pinkham, who was a prospective teammate at the time that had no longer with us, and Justin Williams. Um, who were also teammate that year, and they, uh, yeah, I saw them on Facebook, and I think Chase had said, "Hey man, um, really psyched to be racing with you this year." Psyched is not a word that we use in the English language on our side of the pond. And um, Justin replies, "Like, yeah, man, we got some winning to do." I was just like, "What?" Just the, the the confidence. The the it's not. It was incomprehensible to, to a Brit. Um, 
But it was that was it was such a fun year. Like we had Taylor Finney, uh, who was ridiculously talented, but he was not. He's very confident, but I would not say he was arrogant because he was always very supportive of us. He's like, well, if I'm winning, everyone else is like, you should be winning as well because we're all great bike riders. And we're like, okay, we will. And we had just a mind-blowingly successful year. Um, so that was great. And then, yeah, Team Sky was um, probably the perfect place to be in the Oprah. Um, I had a very successful first year, broken elbow in the second year. Um, problem with the, but the problem with Team Sky is perhaps as it is now there were so many good bike riders I, I, um, up until I think Ethan Hayter I still had the record for the most expect, the most um, successful Neo Pro yeah um, and in the second year they were like you're going to go to a grand tour and then the Giro went by, I mean, the Tour to Tour, like, it was never, I was never going to that. And then the World Tour, they were like, actually, we're, we're going there with Wiggins to try and win it. So we need a team with experience and you haven't got it. So um, we're not going to take you. I mean, they did win it with, through me. Um, so I, I saw where they were coming from, but I also saw there was no place for me there because if that was always going to be the stance but it was going to be experience that held me back. Then um, they, I wasn't going to, um, I, I shouldn't stay. And at the time, Movistar were itching to itching for me to come across, which was really nice. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was nice to be wanted. And Team Sky wasn't fighting that hard to keep me, which I think was a strategy from them because they know that British riders want to ride for Team Sky so um, they made it pretty they, they got an offer in the end but it was they made it, made it made, they made it very easy to leave now Movistar this was different in Team Sky they would rent out a hotel that would normally be shut in Mallorca for the whole winter so get the whole hotel up and running whatever that cost it must have been biblical and they would rotate riders. Your own your training group is only ever as big as like maybe ten riders, and you're just in and out like eight days in, seven days at home, back out eight days in, seven days at home, and oh, it's phenomenal. Movistar didn't have training camps, like nothing. Not <laughs> I saw that in one of your videos recently. That's such a great, yeah, it's such a great example. I mean. I mean yeah. It's spot on. Like going to, to early season full team camps when you have 30 guys on the road, there are two people getting a workout and there are 28 guys in the draft. Yeah. And they're largely useless. So that kind of rotation makes a heck of a lot of sense. And you're right. Yeah. It's going to cost an arm and a leg and an arm and a leg. So I, th- I thought obviously I was like, well, yeah, this is clearly the, the first um, the first example of not doing things as well. Um I'm sure they're going to be more. And I think their logic was, one, like team camps are expensive. Uh, Two, most of the riders, I mean, there was a huge South American contingent on the team, but also most of the riders live in Spain. They live in great places to train. Thirdly, I think the the thinking was there's so much time away during the season that um, this was more time away. And lastly, and sort of coupled with that, like no bike rider has got to that level without the ability to train. 
So I think it was of the opinion that we might actually have happier bike riders without a team cap. And I don't think they're going like, to, we don't think they're going to be, because I mean, ultimately as a pro bike rider, you do have to be self-motivated because the minute you take your foot off the gas, you're going to, you're going to be out the back door pretty quick for pro cycling. So um, yeah, if you need team caps, you probably shouldn't be a pro cyclist. Um, so I, I, I've, I understand the logic later than I did then, but um, I think the real defining moment I thought Marbury Star really did not know what they were doing because I'd come from Team Sky, bit arrogant, um, bit like, you know, Team Sky does things best. Uh, they won the Tour de France last year, kind of thing. Um, we went to a team, the team time trial in Torino, Adriatico, and it was chaos, absolute chaos. Like, we did three laps. There's 22K lap. We did three of them. Probably at 96% of what we raced for that. Like, we went so fast. And then a uh, four-minute warm-up on the term, turbo trainer, which seemed quite inconsequential. And then as we're rolling to the start line, someone goes down the radio, what's the order? And <laughs> the perfect. director was like, well, Visconti's going to start because he's Italian and we're in Italy. And then it's you, 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 you. So we roll down the ramp, get going, and we absolutely storm around and finish second. Most importantly, like a good chunk of time ahead of Team Sky. And I was like, up until the moment I saw the result, I was like, this is, a, this, is, this is a shit show. And then I was like, oh, I think there's something in this. There's this slight looseness, this organized chaos, this, um, like all the bike riders were trusted. There was no pressure. Every time I did a time trial, like, I'd get a pat on the back before, like, we reckon you'll win today, Alex. Um, and I was like, yeah, maybe. And then afterwards, it'd be like, ah, all good. You'll win the next one. There was no pressure. And so, but in a team time everyone then rotated based on their capabilities rather than like getting a sheet of paper that says you have to ride seven watts per kilo for 35 seconds on the front. And that's what holds up a team time trial. Where's Mobby Star? Like, I think we did one in Trentino. It was me and Mallory, who were the two time trialists, and uh, would have been five climbers. And the climbers, we'd pull in 10 second turns each and Mallory and I were pulling a minute each, but we kept the speed. We kept the momentum and it was, it ends up being easier. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, they know, they knew how to race. And I think that was the crucial thing. And that was what was so good there is they, they might not have done a lot of the, the little bits and pieces, the planning, the nitty gritty that Team Sky did, but they, Christ, they knew how to race. Um, well, yeah, yeah phenomenal yeah. results. Well, I think especially while you were there, what, number one ranked team? Yeah, for the three years. And I kept telling them that I was the, the only common denominator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, um, okay, then yeah. move on to, to the German-Russian Swiss, Swiss yeah. program. Uh, yeah. how, how did that segue? How did that go? How did that feel? Started brilliantly. It was clearly you could see the history there. Um, I was sat in a car going to a team presentation with Ekimov, Dirk Demol, and Acevedo, 
we were having a good old reminisce about the, the, the good old days. And we were just talking about how good the team time trialing were and everyone was in Discovery Channel. And I was like, oh, there's a big elephant in this room right now that we're not dressed. <laughs> you guys were all really, like, really, yeah. really good. Yeah, I mean, it was fascinating listening, but like, yeah, the, the basic Katusha that year was Discovery Channel of it, it was Astana, it was Discovery Channel, it was you were supposed to like that group of staff kept moving and I, and it dispersed somewhat by this point in Katusha, but there's certainly there was still elements of it there. Um but you know, they did things right. There was no I you know certainly the, the bit that was missing from the old days was the, the nasty stuff. Um, yes, I think our biggest struggles there were that Marcel Kittel had too much responsibility on his shoulders. Um, it was all pinned. The whole, that final two years of Katusha was all pinned on him. It was all pinned on him winning five stages of the Tour de France or more again. And he, you know, phenomenal bike rider, but I think nobody won't mind me saying it's his, his head was his weakest point, and I think he struggled with that pressure. Um, and the reason I say that is because I saw him do, like, mind-blowing performances every so often. Like, we'd, do, we'd be in Big Bang Tour, and... If I were, I'd be leading him out or trying to move him through the bunch. And if I'd go over 500 watts, he'd be dropped or screaming for me to slow down. I'm like, it's bloody difficult to get to the front of the big bank peloton without over going over 500 watts. And then the next day, 15 minute TT, and he's got a 502 watt average. So I'm like, mate, what's, you know, what's going on here? So I think that was really tough. Um, and it, it was interesting to see, I think sometimes teams become, when they're desperate, they become slaves to the sponsors in inferior equipment. Um, and it was just at that crossover where it was really, people were really starting to recognize how important equipment was. Um, teams, the sponsors putting pressure on the teams to sign certain bike riders that they liked. Um, so, and, uh, and then it's just like a downward spiral. I really, I'm not here to name names, but like we sat with a sponsor who ended up conceding that their product wasn't as good as the previous iteration. And they just said, well, we need you to use it. We actually don't really care if you win one, one less race a year. We need you to use this. And I was like, mate, we won five races last year. So that's 20%. Like, and then the problem with all the other sponsors are like, oh, we don't want to support a losing team. And it just becomes that downward spiral, which is really sad. Because um, it's probably the most fun two years I had. And Trek lived strong in those two years at Katusha were probably the most fun two years I had as a, as a pro bike rider. Interesting. Um, what was the common yeah. language at, at Katusha? Um, they said it was English. Yep. Um, it was almost never Russian. I think I went to one race where it was me and Tony Martin and four or five Russians, and then the dinner table would turn a bit into the Russian, into Russian. But the Russians were, like, they were brilliant. Like, 
Zachary is one of my top 10 favourite teammates. He was just, like, he's a lot of fun, real funny. Like, they're, they're incredibly dry. Um, and uh, yeah, so, um, and then you'd have races where there'd be a huge German presence. And it, I just, I have this resounding noise in my head of Marco Haller shouting, English, please, across the table when the conversation would just drift into German. Uh, so they, they tried very hard for it to be English and, and probably 80% of the time it was. That's great. Uh, um, and then how about, yeah, what's common denominator at Israel Premier Tech? I got to assume English. And yeah, is it, is it a melting pot of a team? I mean, I know there's strong Canadian representation. What else they got? Strong Canadian, strong Israeli. Um, and then, yeah, real mixed bag. A really mixed bag. Um, possibly one of the most international teams there is, I reckon. Yeah, uh, I would say so. Yeah, and perhaps even more so this year because they've lost lost one Australian, two Canadian. Oh, no, they've replaced one Canadian. One Canadian's joined, two have left. Yeah, um, yeah, very international. So English is is very much the the common language the only, the only time you'd ever hear you'd understand some riders got hacked off with it I understood like if you'd have an Italian director with and Demarchi in the breakaway of the Giro Italian would then be spoken and or if Demarchi was trying to talk it's like so I mean Demarchi's Italian his English is phenomenally good the director's English was quite good um, they'd be trying to talk to each other in English across the radio, which is already patchy. And in the end, I'd just be like, whatever you're trying to say, just say it in Italian rather than trying to have this broken like conversation. And yeah, let's, let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's get the conversation done, whatever language. Um, but yeah, that'd be... That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, okay, you are, you cut your teeth as a time trialist. You can certainly do work in a lead out, as you were talking about. I'm really, I'm curious the the psyche of a specialist, like the perspective of day to day racing from the eyes of a specialist. I think of sprinters having a relatively boring day, except for the finish, if it's just a cut and dry sprint day. Um, you're 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 also racing in a in a time and age of crazy talent between Ghana, Wout, Pogachar. Uh, Rohan, obviously. Now, I was a mediocre all-arounder, and that allowed me a career as a domestique. What is it like being a specialist in terms of pressure, in terms of day-to-day activities, in terms of, of your training, and how did that go over the arc of your career? Um, I think it was very... It's easy. Uh, uh, it's good and bad being a time trial specialist. The bad is that you collect no points. So if, if points become valuable to a team, you are not valuable in the slightest. Um, it's, it's something I hope UCI do have a look at because even like Ghana's ability to score points isn't that high. Um, when you compare someone who can run top um, 40 in the Ardennes Classics to Ghana. That's fascinating. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you also, it's easier to get a list of results. Um, like to crack a, 
yeah, my final year, I got a fifth place in the opening stage of Torino. And if I, and I was like, cool, that's, you know, I've been higher. Um, and I've certainly been lower, but nice. sort of like chalked up a, a world tour stage top 10. And I think if I, world tour stage top five, and if I think, well, if I was a pure roadman, these would be very difficult to come by, especially if you're not a sprinter. Um, so I think you're, it's nice to have an ability to get consistent results, um, which is, uh, yes, yeah, so that, that's been, that's, that's the main good and bad part about it. Um, certainly in Movie Star, I'd go to Torino and I'd be like, I'd do the opening stage, 10K. I'd be like, right, well, that's that's me done for this race. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's another seven stages. Yeah. Um, so you, there would be that element of once the TT was done, I, this year it was Giro, right? I mean, I had a mechanical which really threw a spanner in the works, but like the opening, yes, I had the lead up, but the opening stage was my best shot at a, at a result. And then once that was done, I was like, Okay, that's it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, but then having the, the lead out as well was real good because you it's just having a purpose in a race, having a focus. Because I think I wasn't, I'm not, you know, I can do the domestic stuff okay, but certainly I like, toured Britain, I had to ride the front of Reto Hollenstein um, for a lot of it, and I lent on him hard. I, I, he would do the lion's share of it because he just just better at me at that like churning churning away um, so yeah it'd be nice but it's just nice to have a purpose in a race um, for sure it's like going like Milan San Remo this year with Giacomo like he knows the race so well he's so passionate about it that it was like my race effective no one cares what I do after the bottom of the Poggio, um, that the start of Poggio even, I, I could I just, I could miss the Poggio completely. No, it just would not matter yeah. um, if I've done that job. And yeah, and so I think that it makes racing a lot more fulfilling when you are a specialist at something because you, you have something to do and then you'll, but you also have off days as well. So like mountain, mountain stages, you just literally directors like, get yourself to the finish line. That's all you need to do. Um, and how about the, how do you deal with pressure? I mean, okay, Movie Star is that funny example of they pat you on the back and say, you're going to do great today. How yeah, about yeah. how about all through the rest of your career? I mean, imagine that Sky was probably full gas. Uh, Sky was okay because I think because I was in the O-Pro, because I was on the C team. Um, I was in the C program. They were very, and they were, so, they were just happy with how I was doing. I was constantly competitive Um so I think, you know, if you've, say, if you've got results behind you, the pressure's off. Um, if you're fighting to get that result, that's when the pressure's on. So um, as a, I was, you know, young, confident, and quite happy with the pressure because I knew I was, I, I was, I knew I was pretty good. I think one of the best and the worst things that happened to me was winning a stage of the Giro in 2013. Um, best being winning a stage of the Giro, the worst being, I think mean, that was the point I took my foot off the gas for a bit because I was like, oh, I've just come to a grand tour 
won a 55k pretty hilly TT ahead of Bradley Wiggins on the eighth stage. I I must be one of the best in the world at this. And unless you, if you're not pushing forward, you if you stand still, you drop back pretty bloody quickly. Um, and I've heard so, you. I've I've heard you talk about that. What does that mean? Like where where did you get lazy? Did you just sort of like stop training the time trial or what what in particular? Where'd you come off the gas? No, I wasn't training. It was never the training aspect. It was the um I think it was the pushing forwards with like I didn't know I was, but I think I was onto aerodynamics and marginal gains before um most others. because uh, I Silly, stupidly, it's not stupid. It's, it was my wind tunnel with my testing ground at my rocker Corbett. Um, it was a local 10 mile TT, it was the first one I ever did. It was, and I just had this labor of love trying to go faster on it. And and I ultimately I had roughly the same amount of power each time, so I was trying to go faster with the same amount of power. It was pacing, it was equipment, it was stuff. And then just after that win, it was like. I was still trying to, but it was just my mentality. It was like, instead of chasing it, I was like, well, all of that's going to come to me because I'm like, I think probably just a percent or two shift in in mentality and, and work ethic across the board. But that's all it kind of takes because I was just like, well, I am, I'm there. I've done it. And all of this is now going to come to me rather than me having to go and fight for it. And I think just that, very slight shift in in mentality is um so I don't think I never I never missed training I never like started partying I never um you know may, maybe it would have prompted me to move abroad earlier um but then I don't know would that have taken the edge off the time trying I don't know but um I just think there was a slight a very slight mentality shift that wasn't good um and then that kind of, you know, you have a lot of people telling you about how much potential you've got, how, like, it was a training with Cavendish, and he was like, you're going to be world time trial champion one day. And I was like, well, you're Mark Cavendish, so that must be true. And I was just quite naive to believe some of the hype. And then you turn 27, 28, 29, and you're like, well, you're not a young rider anymore. Um and, and then that kick-started the, that mentality again, I think. Um, yeah, it was like, everyone, I remember Garrett Thomas messaged me after that stage with the Giro, was like, I've done a hundred and something Grand Tour stages and not managed to win one, and you've gone and done it eight in eight, like, well done by <laughs> eight, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, oh, okay, well, this was pretty easy, so this is probably going to happen a lot more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. It's it's an interesting tipping point. I mean, I think a lot of what you talked about, you talked about young talent, you talked about moving abroad, whereby I assume you mean going to Andorra. Um, yeah. It's almost like the sport is is changing. I keep tabs on the peloton by watching bike races, reading articles, and talking to folks like you. I've I've heard you talk time and time again about needing to be a smarter rider like like you said at the very beginning everybody knows how to train everybody knows how to race with some exception but at this point the marginal gains are so thin you need to be a smarter rider uh 
are there anecdotes to that? Like where, where have you seen the Peloton changing? Uh, altitude is a great example. Um, anything yeah. like that? Yeah. I mean, the amount of people that live in Andorra uh, or come here training is, is ridiculous. Um, you know, Josh Tarling straight from junior to Ineos, which is great. Like, you know, happy for him. Also moving to Andorra, like that is a massive shift for a 18 turning 19 year old. Yeah. When you think back, I was, was, there's no way I was ready to take on that kind of thing. Um, And on that note, real quick, where did you spend most of your career prior to Andorra? In the UK? uh, In the UK, yeah. Okay. Doing as a time travelist was the best thing I could have done Um, up to a point. uh, But yeah, should have. I think spending more time training in some mountains would have been beneficial and, and altitude camps and stuff. Um, th- that was coupled with like, the reason I didn't was Movistar had a habit of last minute program changes. It was another way of how they functioned, this whole organized chaos. And I remember a conversation I had with Xavier. He's like, you should be spending more time in Spain training. And I said, I'd love to. But the first thing is, is I fund all this. And every time I've done it, I've got to like day three, the boarding pass has appeared in my inbox for a race that I had no idea I was doing, and I have to leave the next day. <laughs> I was like, so that hotel that I'm paying for is now going to be empty, and I'm on a plane somewhere else. So I said, like, it's okay to us. There's kind of no point. I was like, I'm just going to wait at home, train, and just wait for you to send that boarding pass to, or not you, but wait for that boarding pass to be sent. So I'm ready to go, and you know, it's not ruining any of my plans. I was like, I like to plan. I like to know what I'm doing and plan for it. But I I understand that's not the way Movistar work. So I'm going to accommodate that by not making plans. Um, And then then I kind of like, then after that, that just stuck with me. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, smarter riding, I think experience, I had this like, Hallelujah moment in Torino Adriatico a few years ago, 2020, I think it was. We're on this hot dog circuit and it's about a 16 kilometer lap. And um, we've done it like three times. And the finish was at the end of the eight kilometer straight and it was cross crosswind from the ocean. So it was like, you had to be in position. And so as we started the back straights, we were eight kilometers out from quite a complicated corner um, and a complicated turnaround. You turned right, went round and round about over a bridge, turned left, and then um, you're onto the, the home straight. And like every other rider that had a lead out train, there's a director screaming, you have to be in position here. So 8K before this corner, 16K before the finish, there's a drag race already starting to appear. And I go in to join it. And it's high 400s, low 500s. And like, the, the, the moment where is where I went, well, I can't do that. I can't do that for 16. I can't do that for 8K. Like, so I'm not going to. And I think that was the, the smarter riding point where everyone else is still trying to because they've got a voice in their head literally going like you need to be there and I, I just and I said to the team I was like I'm not we're not going to go we're going to come up later and 
we got to like a K before the corner and then put my nose in the wind. So like, that's 600 plus. I was like, I can't do that for a K. Um, I know they're going to accelerate before the corner. So I'm not going to either. So we floated around behind 200 meters before the corner. Everyone, there's suddenly, a, instead of accelerating, there's suddenly a dip in pace. And we just popped around the outside and was first in. And <laughs> I, was, I was like, so actually racing, I train as hard as I can, but I, I, I do whatever I can. But I, ra- I raced knowing my abilities as well. And I think that was probably one of the smartest um, things I started doing in racing is, like in a, in, and especially in a lead out, because you're itching to go and just knowing that you've got a minute at six, seven hundred. So if you hit the front at two, at 2K to go, and as opposed to 1.8, that's quite a big difference as to where you're dropping off the next guy. And if you drop him off 200 metres earlier, he's got the same problem. So... Um, it's being very uh, cautious with with your effort and, and burning your matches, and I reckon that was that's the smarter riding bit. Yeah, I mean, I wonder at what point does the whole peloton slow down five k an hour, and it just becomes a corner dive bombing competition? I can't. I think that's called, I think that's called the classics. Yeah, the classics, crit racing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean. Not everyone. I, I look at a guy like Pogachar, and my understanding. I remember talking to uh, uh, Mate Mahorich, we were teammates on Liquid Gas, and when Mate was nineteen year old, two time world champion, he was talking about this young up and coming Slovenian who uh-huh. no one had heard of Pogachar in two thousand fifteen, and he was like a twelve year old kid, and Mate was already predicting his talent, and cool. and. So point is, he's been training like a world tour rider since he was probably 10, it seems. I mean, I haven't done that re- reverse arithmetic. But it's it's younger training, smarter training from the time of super youth that is allowing somebody like him or Remco, well, Remco got a little bit later, to come in lightning hot. But not everybody can be Wout, not everyone can be Vanderpool, not everyone can be Pogachar, not everyone can be Remco. It's it's fascinating in this age of seeking marginal gains, of a whole peloton moving to Andorra, of the constant uh, training camps, which I think is really only a thing of the past decade. Yeah. I'm curious at what point. Does the bubble burst? Does the bubble burst? And, and, and as much as you can seek marginal gains in everything from your equipment to your position – Bike racing still takes place on open roads. I mean, so it's not like we're in a wind tunnel. It's not like we're on a closed track. It's not like we're racing in a vacuum. So it's still, I mean, that's why we watch it. It's still just a fascinating spectacle. Uh, I wonder how long careers are going to be. Yeah. Maybe the same length, but you won't see 34, 35-year-olds in the peloton anymore. People will be aging out at Mm -hmm. 35. Well, sure. Pojikar, for for all those reasons, makes a perfect example of that. Like, yes, he is storming in a two-time world uh, tour champ, but people forget about the previous 15 years of of bike racing training to have gotten him to that point. Like, crazy. Um, Okay. How are you doing on time? You got another 10 minutes? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Amazing. Appreciate it. Uh, Social media has been important to you lately. Um, you announced your retirement on YouTube, for example. You have 
a, quite frankly, booming channel that comes up with really thoughtful, creative content. And I think that's why people eat it up. Um, I often think back in my career in racing with liquid gas, and I think I was nearly laughed off the bus by having Twitter, by having Strava, by having a website, Um, which I never did for any particular reason, except for a fun way to communicate both with my family or friends or, or this world, because it's such an obscure career that we live in. What I'm curious, what your experience has been with social media over the arc of your career? Cause you're certainly going deeper into it now than, than before. Yeah. I mean, I made, I learned a lot. I made mistakes early on, um, social media and media, um, and being the, the backlash being very visible, uh, is tough. So I, no, I'm very honest on social media, but I'm also careful. If I have an opinion that I think is needs some thought, could divide opinion, could just upset a lot of people, I'm okay with keeping it to myself as well. Um, and That's good advice these days. Yeah, yeah. You can get chewed up and spat out very quickly. Oh, I called 2012... I called Lancer, and we were not armed. With, we were in China where there was no internet or no social media, and we did not get the full story. I called Lance Armstrong a legend at the exact moment that you should not call Lance Armstrong a legend. Um, and it was, I had to turn the phone off for a few days because it, it probably wasn't even a patch on saying the equipment, like being cancelled was not a thing back then. So fortunately, I had to edit my own Wikipedia page twice to people kept putting like Alex Nelson, the guy that called Lance Armstrong then. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm take that out. Um, that's not going to be my legacy. Um, so yeah, it's kind of learned. And I, I think there's been there's been times when um, certainly when I was starting to struggle, there was a period I was struggling to get some results and wasn't living up to the, the potential that I think had there'd been. Yeah, I, I did well, but perhaps some people had me pegged for doing better than I did. And a lot of people would tell me that on social media and I didn't much like listening to it. Um, so I think I would have quite happily stepped away from social media then. But at that point, it had, it had become... A bit too big, a bit too big to um, move away from. I was like, this is this is this is too significant an audience. Um, not the like use the audience. I was just like, this, this it is too big to just press delete on. Um, and I think also combined with um, what I wasn't doing in the back of my mind, I thought I'm like this this. You know, one post cycling, this might be something that I need to have, and and, and you know, I'm talking about it like it's bad. There's there's so many aspects to it that I enjoy as well. I enjoy connecting with people. I enjoy um, like the, just the, the funny stuff on there. How creative other people can be, like just the humour. Like I'll crack a joke, and then someone will just crack a better one. I'll be like, I'm taking that. I'm, I'm using that. Like <laughs> it's. It's utterly brilliant, um, but it gives everyone unbridled access to everyone, and that's that can be tough. Um, Chanel 
put something out a few days ago, how much an Ironman cost? Because it was like, should I, my, my fiance did an Ironman this year, um, finished it, was, um, you know, she's got a good, good social media following. A lot of companies uh, threw a lot of product her way at her. And she came away from it. She was like, this was still expensive. And I got a lot of this for free. I, I'm going to tally it all up and work out what it cost. And it ended up being like all of Chanel's stuff for the Ironman amounted to 20 grand. And it's like, what? So an Ironman is not for everyone. An Ironman is for those that can afford it. Um, and yes, like, like the specialized, the specialized gave her was more expensive than what was needed. And, like, you know, Sure, it could have been done probably like a half or two thirds of the price, but a lot of people were calling her out, and I was sat there like, "I've learned not to do stuff like this." <laughs> yeah, I think she woke up in a cold sweat at three AM and just deleted it because she like just that. that. It, it's horrible to have, and, and people say like, "You should just like, oh, you should just." Ignore it. And it's like, well, if someone walked down the street and called you all the things that they call can happy to call you under social media, pretty difficult to ignore that. Um, so that's the that's the bad. I mean, the good, the good is the um, the good is the connection to the people. And I think for me, it's it's very grounding as well. Um, it's very like to understand to understand what you sometimes the journey that people are on with you and what your achievements my 2020 year win how big that was across social media and how people um reacted to that i don't think would have wouldn't have been nearly the case had i not put this much work into social media across my whole career um, I think there's far more people invested in, in my journey than someone of a, a similar level. Um, ben O'Connor, before he was, uh, um, before he got fifth in the tour, so that year in 2020, we're both in the same boat, both fighting for a contract, both um, like struggling, and we both won a stage of a zero. And I think the, the, the reset, no, I like you know, I like Ben a lot, but um, the reception to my win was um, was colossal because there was there's just not a lot of emotion packed behind it, and perhaps that's the main thing around it. People are more emotionally invested in you because they feel like they do know you. They do know you, unless you're not true to yourself on social media. They do know you, and that's it's great. Like I put a started doing coaching for next year and and it was something I learned in a just a club 10 mile TT a few years ago is that we're all all of us that are riding bikes we're all going through exactly the same shit like it just might be at different speeds and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. big time put a call out for I, I, I learned this I, I really learned this in in a time trial when um, a British TT, you hand your numbers in, you get a cup of coffee or a pint at the pub and chat about the race or anything with, with your club mates. And um, I was chatting to this lady who'd gone around in 31 minutes for 16K. I'd gone around in 19 something. And, and she, I said to her, How was your ride? She was like, Yeah, no, I'm really happy. I just, that bit by the petrol station I really struggled with. And I said, God, yeah. I said, yeah, that really, 
kicked the crap out of me. Like, and, that. and she kind of looked at me confused. And she was like, well, it's time like that, but you barely even felt it. I was like, no, nah, I felt it just as much as, as you did. I mean, just at a slightly different speed. But, like, so this chap on Twitter messaged and was like, I don't think I'm up to the level that's worthy. He used the word worthy of your coaching. And I was like, mate, Zone three for me is exactly the same for the same as it is for you, as it's the same for Ganner and Pagacha. Uh, it's just going to be at slightly different speeds or powers, but we're all doing exactly the same thing. And I think that's what's really nice. And I hope, yeah, that comes across with social media. But that's um, certainly there's, you know, you, yeah, like I said, you you don't have to share every opinion that you've got. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah, steer clear of politics. That's a good start. Yeah. Especially <laughs> um, well, UK and US, I'd imagine. Yeah, in particular. Uh, I mean, you're spot on. I think especially the content that you produce on YouTube, it's it's purposefully educational. It's, it's the stuff that you've gleaned from a career in the sport. And there are so many people who can eat it up on a computer screen reading an article but it's so much more personal to actually hear from you and no different than coaching and that's i think that's that's what i love about it as well it's like this ability to pass on this career of knowledge that you've built because if you like without social media without coaching without those things certainly you could do it in other capacities and run club teams and that's very important and coach locally but it just allows that message to reverberate to such a larger audience which is which is awesome. And it's also why I started the show by saying, how is your running going for those uninformed? I think one of your more recent videos was, was about your early, uh, uh, dabblings in running. So as we begin to wrap up, I'm curious, have you gone into manufacturing yet to create the shoulder warmers? (laughs) They exist, but just in really, um, really out there, Fetish level nightclubs. Yes, indeed. And probably a netting that, netting <laughs> material that doesn't actually keep you warm. Uh, um, um, no, 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 I haven't. I just, uh, yeah, it, it's just, it's been really hilarious working out, like running. I, I, I think I've stumbled, not even stumbled across. It's um, where running. Um, everyone in a, everyone's been saying, well, what do you need to carry like water for? What do you need to carry nutrition for? Um, I'm like, well, hydration and fueling. <laughs> and like, no, 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 no. You just, you leave everything in the car, including your phone, and you just go run. And I was like, hmm. And everyone says you hit a wall in a marathon. Yeah, like, exactly. The 20 mile or the 32K mark. I wonder why. Like, I wonder why. So um, they got this. Uh, might be might be onto something with with uh, having a, a fanny pack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got to work on the suspension issue so that it's really lashed to you and not just bouncing around everywhere. But yeah, a, a half hour run that's like a three hour bike ride. Yeah. And oh then, yeah. Yeah. Nutrition's key. Yes. All right. Absolutely. Well, goodness gracious, uh, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate all that you bring to the sport, all you bring to it afterwards. Uh, congratulations on parenting. Didn't even talk about that, but parenting is the best and it's an awesome adventure. Uh, 
I think you get married this year. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. End of the year. Did it in that, that way around. Big year coming up. Um, oh, yes. And what? You said you're, you are moving back to the UK. Is that right? Yeah, I'm moving back to the UK. Um, working, I mean, like the actual, what I'm doing is uh, working with a junior team, which is fun. Uh, and working with uh, No Pins, uh, which is a clothing brand on being an ambassador for them, but also working on some some new stuff with them as well, which is gonna which is right on my street because they're very performance focused. Um, a few other bits and pieces, and then and just doing some other sport. Still on a bike, but I'll probably be on a gravel bike. I will probably be lining up for a triathlon at some point, um, and the London Marathon. But I will be time trialing as well. So. It's going to be fun. You got it. You got a busy year coming up. Well, appreciate the time. Really good to catch up. And all the best in 2023. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tim. Thank you, Alex, for taking the time. The two of us have been trying to make this work for some time, so I'm really glad that it worked out. Psyched, I might even say. Hey folks, if you enjoyed this show, standard rules apply. Like, share, subscribe. Truly, that is valuable. And if you think you have an interesting guest that you'd like to hear on the podcast, let me know. Shoot me a comment. Shoot me a message. That's how this one came up, and I'm really, really happy we made it happen. Okay, that's it. That's all. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.